Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. Well, we come now to the end of our, our journey through 2 Corinthians. I was quite surprised. I just went and had a look how many sermons it's taken us, and it's, it's nearly 30 sermons. I think this is number 28, so uh, it's quite something. I didn't think it was that many. Thank you for being patient and uh, still, still being here. Uh, I must say for me personally, it's been a wonderful privilege to study 2 Corinthians. Um, I'd always known it was Paul's most emotive book. It was the, the, one of the letters that I loved most about the Apostle Paul because I got to see his heart. You know, the other Romans, Ephesians are fantastic books, obviously rich in theology. But there you're just seeing Paul as sort of the teacher, as the apostle teaching and instructing. Yeah, you, it's hard to get a sense of, of the man and his experiences. But 2 Corinthians is more autobiographical than theological in that sense. He really bears his heart. We get to see how much this man was like the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you've seen that. You've seen how he followed Christ in suffering in experiencing shame and rejection, in persecution, in slander, and yet continue to love the Corinthian church. Uh, it is also a book that is uh, rich in pastoral application, uh, what it means to be a pastor. Uh, one sees that Paul has uh, confidence in the work of the Spirit to save people. It is only the Holy Spirit who can save people. You can't manipulate people into the kingdom of God. Uh, you can't trick them into the kingdom of God. And that's why Paul refuses to practice cunning or to try and peddle or manipulate God's word. He, he preaches God's word faithfully and trusts that the Holy Spirit will do the work. It is only God who can say, let there be light when there is darkness. It is only God who can take a heart of stone and change it into a heart of flesh. And Paul also realizes in this passage, in this book, uh, that it is through magnifying Christ, as we've just sung. We want to see Christ. It is as people behold Christ that they are changed from one degree of glory to another. And so he, he believed in Christ-centered preaching, in the sufficiency of Christ. Uh, he also, we saw that uh, a faithful pastor is not domineering, uh, is uh, not someone who is just filled with dynamism and charisma and is domineering, but a true pastor is one who loves. Uh, a true pastor is one who endures, who does not give up. We see Paul is tempted at times, but he does not give up. And so now we come to this last section, and we're going to look at verses 11 to 14. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Paul says this, he says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. So you notice there he starts off by saying, finally, brothers. So finally, this is the conclusion of his letter. Uh, sometimes Paul is very much like a pastor. Some of his letters he'll say finally and carry on talking for two or three chapters. Uh, so you know in the congregation when the person says, in conclusion, and you're like, yes. Uh, and he carries on for another 30 minutes. Uh, well, this is uh, not one of those times. Paul actually says, finally, and there's just a few more verses. So this is the conclusion. 
Uh, he says, finally, brothers or brethren, uh, some of the newer translations will say brothers and sisters, and that is the correct meaning, uh, but the original Greek is, is brothers. It is masculine, but that does not mean he's using it only to speak to the men in the church. That's not what is happening. And so I just want to ex expand on that a little bit because there could be confusion. Someone, a lady could be offended as she reads God's word and think, why is it always brothers? Is it just for men, the Bible? What's going on here? And uh, I want to encourage you that's uh, not the intentional meaning at all. In fact, what Paul is doing here in, is quite an incredible thing. Uh, when he calls the church brethren or brothers... Uh, he is not denigrating women at all. He is, in fact, exalting them. Because in that society, in that culture, uh, women were seen as less than nothing. Uh, some of what the rabbis said were, were terrible things. Uh, women were not allowed to testify in court. Their, their witness was not seen as credible. And so when the scriptures come, and, and we see the way the Lord Jesus treats people, we see the way the apostles treat people, and when the Bible says we're sons of God, that's not saying, well, sorry ladies, uh, you're, you're left out. No, in that culture, the firstborn male son was the one who inherited everything. It was the sons who received all the blessings. It was not the daughters, and, and it's still the same in many traditional cultures. You know that, that families are happier when they have a son than a, than a daughter. Uh, so when scripture says we're all sons of God, what it's actually doing is saying, ladies, you are also treated uh, as, as men. Uh, you receive all the blessings that are promised to men in that culture. So when he says brothers, it includes everyone, men and women. You're all equal in value. Uh, you're brethren, you're brothers and sisters. And he's actually lifting up, exalting women to this uh, privileged position, which was shocking in the culture at the time. And so he's saying to the Corinthian church, brothers and sisters, uh, what does that mean? It means we're united in Christ, but it also means that uh, brothers were the ones who received the inheritance. Every single Christian is a joint heir with Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is our brother. The Bible teaches that. The Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect son who perfectly obeyed the Father. Uh, we are the disobedient children. We are the ones who've rebelled against our Father. We are the ones who have blasphemed His name. And yet, if we're in Christ, we receive, we are joint heirs. We receive all the blessings uh, that Christ receives. We, we are those who inherit eternal life, who inherit all the blessings of the new heaven and new earth, who are adopted into the family of God. And so, I want you to see how remarkable this is that Paul ends this letter by calling the Corinthians brothers and sisters. If you've been here through this series, you'll know that this church has behaved in an abominable way. They have treated Paul in a, in a not even the way unbelievers would treat people, one, one, it seems. This is their father in the faith. He's the one who planted the church. He's the one who discipled them. He's the one who loved them so much that he didn't even uh, receive financial support from them. He labored day and night in their midst. He gave of himself to them. And they turned against him. They were seduced by these false teachers. They believed the lies of these false teachers. This is an important principle here. Uh, don't just believe what other people say about someone. Okay? Take it where it's coming from. What's the character of this person? Do I know? When someone says something about someone that I know, where am I going to put the weight and the emphasis? I know this person. I've known this person for 10, 15, 20 years. I've walked a road with this person. If you just quickly sway it, someone just comes along and tells you something and then you just give it, oh yeah, this person, you believe that lie. Well, that's a, that's a, a terrible thing. But that's exactly what this church did. These false teachers come in and they say, Paul's a liar. Paul's a thief. Paul's immoral. You can't trust him. And they... They're swayed by the eloquence and the charisma and the dynamism of these, these false teachers. And yet here, Paul at the end says, he still calls them brothers and sisters. Still hope, still confident that they belong to Christ. They're behaving like unbelievers. He says that to them. He says, I have to speak to you as carnal. Carnal means fleshly, as though you're not saved. 
but he still has confidence that God has worked, that they are truly saved. And so he says, finally, brothers, brothers and sisters, uh, again, showing the, the love of the apostle who is exemplifying the love of Christ. And then Paul closes with a list of uh, five imperatives, five commands, and then a blessing. I think the, the title for the sermon is Final Biddings and a Benediction. But after studying it further in the week, it should be Final Biddings and Benedictions. There's two blessings, there's two benedictions in this passage. So he gives five commands to the Corinthians, a blessing, and then another command, and then a final closing benediction, a final closing blessing. So his last words are instructions and blessings to the church. And they're very applicable to all of God's people. So the first command is rejoice. It is a command. It's in the imperative mood. It's not, you know, if you would like to, it's optional. It's a command for all of God's people to rejoice. And over and over again in Scripture, especially the New Testament, we find this command, don't we? Rejoice in the Lord. And again I say, rejoice. Uh, Paul commands this over and over again. One commentator says this, Of the 326 occurrences of words for joy in the New Testament, 131 are found in the 10 letters that are ascribed to Paul. That's nearly, that's uh, 40%. 40% of all the... The, the, the number of times that the word joy occurs in the New Testament are attributed to the Apostle Paul. And he goes on to say this, So Paul can well be regarded as the theologian of joy, as he undoubtedly was that of grace. It is well known we talk of Paul as the theologian of grace. Uh, he's the one who so clearly teaches that all of life is grace, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But uh, this commentator correctly says Paul can also be called the theologian of joy because his epistles are full of this, this term. Now, it seems a strange thing to command an emotion, isn't that right? Uh, if I say, be happy, okay? <laughs> uh, it's not a switch that you can just put on and off uh, unless you're an actor or an actress, but then it's still external, isn't it? It's not... Uh, it's, it's not the real emotion. Uh, it's, it's very hard to, to just change one's emotions. In fact, one could argue it's pretty much impossible. You can't just change your emotions. Uh, what the Bible does show us is that you can change what you think about. You have control over your thoughts. You can block and, and discipline your mind to put certain thoughts out. And that's the Bible teaches this is what we are to do. And uh, think on good things. Remember Philippians 4, whatever is good and pure and noble and good report, think on these things. So we're told over and over again to think correctly. So you can change what you think about and that will affect your emotions. And you can change what you do. Again, we have power to, to change our actions by God's grace. We can do different things that again will affect our emotions. But is Paul arguing here for simply an emotion of joy? Um, I'm not sure. When I, you know, I was even talking to Pastor Lelo during the week, and it's something I've wrestled with my whole life. How do you define joy as a Christian? What does it mean to have joy as a Christian? It seems like you know, trying to nail jelly to the wall. Uh, it's hard to define it. Generally, we go to just being happy. But Paul says something like this. Paul says this uh, in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Okay, wait a minute. So, you know, can you be sorrowful and happy at the same time? No, I don't think so. He says we're sorrowful, yet we have joy. So I'm going to do my best to try and uh, explain, and this is, is years of of trying to figure it out, what it means, what does Christian joy mean? Uh, let's just see what the Bible says. Uh, so first of all, joy can be just rejoicing and being happy in, in the simple pleasures of life. Okay. So listen to Acts 2.46. The early church, day by day, they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts or joyful hearts. Just the simple pleasures of life. They were just enjoying fellowship and a good meal together. Okay. 
There's a challenge for us there. Um, learn to enjoy the simple things in life okay, as a Christian. Don't take them for granted. Those are all gifts from God. If you're able to sit down and have, have a Sunday lunch, if you're able, and, and whatever it consists of, but maybe to just be with people who love you, to be with brothers and sisters, what an incredible privilege. Okay. Enjoy the food and drink that God has given us to enjoy. Taste it. Take time over it. Appreciate it. God, Paul says this, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. Okay, so often we're so consumed with the future and this and that and something else and I've got to do this and I'm checking my phone and you just miss out on living in the moment. Okay? And I know that you know, unbelievers will say these things as well. But it's, it's Christian because we're the only ones who can appreciate these things properly because they're not ends in themselves. We don't live for food. Food is there to help us to live. So it's not an idol for us. So we can actually enjoy it properly and give glory to God. That's why we give thanks, isn't that right? It's, a, it's not some mystical, magical thing that you know, changes the food or something. Or It's just a quite an answer. This is from God. God, you provided for me. Uh, you, how kind you are to me. Help me to enjoy this to your, to your glory. Uh, learn to, to appreciate God's creation. Again, the scriptures are full of that. So much of the Psalms is just rejoicing in God's creation. The stars, the mountains, the birds of the air. Okay. It is right for us to slow down. We live in Johannesburg, we have to fight this. Okay? Uh, we're always busy, always rushing. And what happens? Our joy is robbed just from appreciating the simple things that God has given us to enjoy. Proverbs 23, 24 says, The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. Let your, let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. Okay? So children, you can bring joy to your parents okay? uh, as you obey them and serve the Lord. Okay? Take joy in, in people serving the Lord. It's wonderful. I mean, I get at the end, it's one of my great joys when I finish preaching, I get to stand here and see everyone singing and I see your faces and just praising God and it's just it's one of the highlights of my week because I get to enjoy that you take time out just to see people serving and just rejoice how God has worked in these people's lives God has loved these people from before the foundation of the world they're his children we should delight in that Lord you love this person wow you look at them they're serving look at them how they're sacrificing look at the the, the warm greeting look at the love Rejoice in, in God working in people. Obedience brings joy. Obedience to God. So one of the reasons why you might not have joy is you're not obeying God. Don't expect to have joy if you're living in unrepentant sin. It's God's kindness to you that he's taken that joy away from you. It's a frightening thing if you're living in unrepentant sin and you're happy about it. Maybe that God has abandoned you. But disobedience robs joy. Obedience brings joy. You can see this in the Lord Jesus. The joy in, in, in obeying the Father. He was anointed with the oil of gladness above everyone else. Salvation should bring joy as you meditate on salvation. That God has saved you. And so I think this is when we link it to what I read earlier on that we can be sorrowful. So you, you can experience terrible things like we've seen the Apostle Paul experience. Slander, persecution, rejection. Remember he said he, he despaired even of life. He couldn't find rest. Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. So the best, I think, definition that I could come up with is it is an inner contentment as you fix your mind on the realities of the gospel and who you are in Christ and the promise and the hope that you have. So it, that's why we say things like it's only a Christian can understand these things. It's something much deeper than just superficial happiness. It is that contentment. Uh, you can't be... You can't receive terrible news that someone you love has died or 
you've been diagnosed with a terminal disease or something like that, or be uh, so, and and then and then be happy. That's that's perverse. Okay, There's something wrong. But you can have joy. You can have contentment, Lord. You love me. You've forgiven me my sins. Your plan is perfect. You know exactly what you're doing. You're never against your children and, see, and learn contentment. And I think that's the, 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 the fundamental idea of Christian joy. That at times will have, have great emotion as well. Uh, at times it will break out in wonderful experiential joy. Maybe it's when we're singing a hymn and, the, and, and the, the lyrics and the music work together to move you to, to wonderful joy. Maybe it's just you're reading a, God's Word or hearing a sermon and it, it, it just touches your heart and, you, and you're just broken by the, the love of God and just to know that you're forgiven and, and accepted by Him. But fundamentally, I think it is this inner contentment as you fix your mind on your salvation you fix your mind on the fact that this, this life is short. This life is as bad as it will ever get for you. Okay? If you're in, in the midst of serious trial and tribulation, tremendous pain, whatever it is, wherever you find yourself, preach the gospel to yourself. Lord, I'm loved. I'm right with you, my Creator. My sins are all forgiven. This is temporary. This will not last. I have an eternal hope. And so again, joy is linked to the hope of the resurrection. In Romans, Paul does this. He links it to the hope of the resurrection. We must, over and over again, Peter says as well, you know, that we must talk about these things. We must encourage one another with the hope of the resurrection. This is not all there is to life. This is just, you know, the first, the introduction, you know, when you read one of those thick books. Your life is just that first page, you know, in memory of. (laughs) Uh, That's your life. Uh, You know, C.S. Lewis says this in in, in the Chronicles of Narnia. When you get to that new heaven, that new world, well, that's the story has just begun. Okay. Forever and ever. It will go on forever and every chapter will be better than the chapter before. It will be that, that we can't even begin to comprehend these things. And so preach that to yourself. Um, This is not positive thinking. Positive thinking is just filling your mind with things you hope will come right. And lies about yourself. Okay? I'm actually amazing. I'm actually amazing. I'm actually (laughs) amazing. This is not that. This is filling your mind with truth. The promises of God who cannot lie. Okay? It's, it's, It's saying, what are your promises to me? I'm going to hold on to them. The conversion of others should bring us joy. Acts 15 verse 3, So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. We're even told that the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who comes to repentance. We should be rejoicing as we see people coming to Christ, as we see baptisms. Uh, that is the, the, the most amazing thing. Remember Jesus said, you will do mightier works than these. Uh, far more people have been converted under the apostles and since the time of Christ than were converted under Christ's ministry. Did you know that? Jesus is saying, the miracles that I do, you'll do greater things. Not in our own strength, but the gospel is the greatest miracle. Creation and healing people, that's easy. It doesn't even, God just speaks and it happens. It's not a biggie, okay? If you know God, it's, it's, that's why, you know, people who say they're Christian and battle with creation and the virgin birth, I'm like, that's nothing for God. What do you, that's, that's, he just talks and it happens, okay? But to redeem us, God had to enter into our, into our flesh, into flesh, and suffer and walk on this dusty earth and be persecuted and rejected and be tried and, and tempted in every way as we are. And yet without sin, he resisted unto the shedding of blood. And then he's humiliated, stripped naked and crucified 
to redeem us cost the best, the best of the Father. He gave the greatest gift. Okay. So to redeem us, that's the greatest thing. To see people saved is the greatest miracle. It should bring us joy. And so, uh, in, learn to enjoy the simple things in life that God has given us to enjoy. Okay. Start to cultivate that gratitude. Okay. Uh, start to, to be thankful for every little thing. Lord, thank you for the sunrise. Thank you for the sunset. You're stuck in traffic and then you see, you know, I read, I read uh, an article sometime and it just resonated with me. And a man just said, there's nothing like an African sunsets and sunrises. It's true. They're so glorious, so beautiful. What a privilege to, to live in South Africa, to live in Africa, to experience all the beauty and the, of nature and things that people in most of the rest of the world will never even ever experience. Uh, to live in Johannesburg with all its different cultures and different cuisines and so many things. Those are all little things. Learn to cherish the kindness of God to us. To say thank you, Father. Thank you for this. Thank you for this, this, this thing that you've given to me, this blessing that you've given to me. It comes from you. And then we move on to the gospel, what, what you've done for me, Lord. Infinitely greater than all of those things. Those are little, little foretastes that all point to what he's done internally, washed away my sins, given me hope for eternal life. And so you will learn contentment. Paul says that, I've learned contentment. So don't be discouraged, it won't happen overnight. If the Apostle Paul couldn't get it right overnight, you're not going to get it right, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm not going to get it right, there's no one else who's going to get it right overnight. It's, it's a process, but start the discipline, otherwise you'll be a grumpy old man or woman. Okay. You're going to get old and you haven't learnt it and you're just discontent with everything and you know the people I'm talking about. Um, in our families we always have those people. You meet them maybe in the workplace. They're old and grumpy and bitter and twisted. God's people should not be characterized by that. So learn it now. Get those habits of, of gratitude. Focusing on the gospel, the promises of God, even in the midst of trials, so that it's not some fluffy happiness that you produce, but know there's a contentment. And know that God is in control. And so Paul says rejoice. Corinthians, they've been through a rough time. He says rejoice. He says that to all of God's people. Second command, aim for restoration. Restoration, yeah, the same word we, we saw last week in verse 9, that I said can be the restoration of a dislocated arm or to mend the nets, as it's used in, in Matthew. Remember, they were fishermen, some of the disciples, and obviously at times the nets broke, and they had to sit and mend them. And that's the picture here. The Corinthians need to be mended. Uh, their relationships need to be mended. There was so much heartache and brokenness and hurt. Uh, there was factionalism in the Corinthian church. You can see that in 1 Corinthians. Some were saying, I'm of Peter, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul. Then you had the very spiritual ones who said, we're of Jesus. Uh, there was all this uh, little clicks. And then they turned against Paul. There was so much hurt. Uh, and so he says, look, aim for restoration. There needs to be restoration. There needs to be amending. And that's the same today. Okay. Um, we live in a fallen world God saves us but we still hurt one another we say things we, we act in thoughtless ways aim for restoration if there are relationships you need to mend do that if they're in the church it's critical that you do that remember we saw last week about the sins or whenever it was the sins of disunity slander and gossip and all of those things. Go and humble yourself. If you've sinned against someone, go and humble yourself and repent. Say, I've spoken to you in an unkind way. I've, I've been thoughtless. I've been rude. Please forgive me. Restore that relationship. And so Paul commands God's people, aim for restoration. Restore relationships. 
And if it's someone outside, not in the local church, maybe it's a family member, it's a powerful witness to the reality that you are a Christian if you humble yourself and go and seek to restore those relationships. If you've sinned against a family member or a work colleague, it's evidence of Christ working in you if you go and say, please forgive me to restore that relationship. Third command, he says, comfort one another. Or some translations, encourage one another. Okay? Uh, this church has been through a lot. They need to be comforted. They need the God of all comfort to comfort them. But God also uses other people to comfort us. Isn't that right? In our sufferings, in our trials, uh, they needed encouragement. So, so look to encourage people. If you see someone is downcast, you see a brother or sister who seems to be under the weather, don't see what's wrong. Encourage them. Uh, point them to the Lord. Point them to the love of Christ. Another, another way it could be interpreted is accept encouragement, which is quite interesting. Accept encouragement. And I think there's also something to that, because sometimes we can be too proud to be encouraged. Okay? You know what I mean? I, you know when people, I don't need sympathy. Okay? You're not willing to receive encouragement. Okay. Maybe you take it as a, you know, no, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with me uh, as, a, as a slight on your character. If, you, if someone comes and says, hey, are you okay? You look a little bit down. You're like, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. You're too proud even to be encouraged to admit that, no, I need, I need help. I, I would appreciate this, or I would appreciate you praying, and um, I'm, I'm battling with my faith at the moment. I'm battling with fighting sin, whatever it is. So don't be one of those... If, if, if uh, you know, Christianity was like the Simon and Garfunkel song, I Am an Island, uh, you know, you just, it's just individualistic. We, then we're wasting our time here. We don't need church. We don't need community. You could just get saved and just carry on with your life by yourself and we'll all be fine. But it's not like that. God commands us to be in community because we need one another and that means we have to humble ourselves and say, I need help. I can accept, I, I will accept, thank you. Thank you for pointing me to Christ. Um, if you you know, trying to impress everyone to look like a strong Christian, then that's fake. Okay. That's hypocrisy. Um, all of God's people take strain. All of God's people are tempted. The Apostle Paul bore his heart. Would you imagine that the, if you had only read Paul's other letters, would you have ever thought the Apostle Paul battled with depression? Would you have ever thought that he despaired of life? Probably not. Probably thought Paul's got it all together. But he says, no, I've experienced these things. He needed brothers and sisters. He needed others to encourage him. Move on to the fourth command that he gives them. He says, agree with one another. All this division in, in verse 20, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, faction, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorder. So Paul commands them, agree with one another. Corinthians, you need to agree with one another. Now, this isn't postmodernism. It isn't, he's not saying, guys, just agree to get along, agree that everyone's truth claim is equally valid, um, or just drop it to the lowest common denominator that, you know, we just, we, we just make it work. We don't really have, we don't stand for anything. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying get along at the expense of truth. Uh, he's not saying that at all. Uh, he's saying that we need to agree with one another in the truth. We need to be on the same page when it comes to the truth of God's word. He's not saying that everyone has to dress the same or support the same soccer team, although that could be really helpful. <laughs> it would end a lot of heartache, I'm sure. Uh, He's not, he's not arguing for a uniformity that we're all just the same, we, have the, we like the same music, the same food, the same everything. No, that's not what he's talking about. It's in the truth. Every Christian must be on the same page when it comes to the fundamentals of Christianity. What it means to be a Christian. What salvation is. Agree in the truth. And if there are secondary or tertiary differences, that's where they stay. 
they don't become primary differences. They don't become things where you, you seek to split a church or uh, break fellowship with brothers and sisters because you differ on, on a secondary or a tertiary issue or you differ on um, some vague interpretation of some obscure verse in Revelation and then you're like, I can't fellowship with these people because... No, that's... But that happens. The church is always scoring own goals. It's always doing that, breaking over stupid things. No, it's about unity. Agree in the truth. And then the fifth command, live in peace. Yeah, Paul sounds very much like the Lord Jesus in Mark 9 verse 50. Jesus says to his disciples, be at peace with one another. They had just been arguing over who's the greatest. <laughs> and Jesus says, be at peace with one another. Okay? Uh, what robs us of peace in our relationships? It's fighting, isn't it? Quarreling. What does James say? Why do, you, why, do we go, why do people go to war? Why do we fight with each other? Because we want something. We don't get it. And so we fight. And get the respect I deserved. So I'm going to fight with you. Okay? Then treat me like you should have. So I'm going to fight with you. Not saying that there isn't, you know, that we just sweep all sin under the carpet. Not at all. But it's, again, it's not fighting with one another. Live at peace with one another. Over and over again, Paul really emphasizes this. Romans 12, he says, Make every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. You know that Satan is, is, is doing everything in his power to divide, to destroy, to break down. That's what he wants to do. He wants to cause division. He wants to... And he knows how each one of us get hurt, and so he, he magnifies those things. He, he, he encourages cattiness and pettiness and oversensitivity. He does that. I mean, how, how sensitive is the West at the moment? People are so sensitive on everything. That's brilliant what he's done. How divided is the world now? So divided, so fragmented, because... God's people know, make every effort, fight not to be offended. Okay? Fight for unity. Again, not at, not at all costs, not at the expense of truth, but we, we're brothers and sisters to love one another. First Thessalonians, Romans 14, he says, live in peace with one another. This is a huge theme, to live in peace. Okay? Sin, again, will break that peace. But restoration, as you confess it, make right... Restore that peace, that wholeness with, with one another. And then he goes to a blessing, a benediction, the first one. And the God of love and peace will be with you. He prays a, a blessing over them. But notice how it's linked to what has gone before. If there's no rejoicing, if there's no restoration, if there's no mending, if there's no encouraging of one another, if there's um, no peace, if there's no agreeing with one another, then... How could you say the God of love and peace is with them? They go together. It's not that we earn the blessing. They go together. Um, if, if, we're not, if we're fighting with each other, if we're, if we're not forgiving, if we're not dealing with hurts, then we can't expect the God of love and peace to be with us. If the God of love and peace is not with us, then we will be fighting and it's a virtuous circle. Okay? Uh, we need the two to go together. We need the blessing of God and the commands of God. There's God's sovereignty and then human responsibility. This is a blessing. God is with his people, the God of love. This is the only place in the Bible where it has that exact phrase, the God of love. Uh, we have the love of God often, and of course it's a, you know, referring to the same thing, but the God of love and peace. God has shown his inconceivable love to us humans by sending his son who makes peace between us and, and God the God of love and peace and so these things are critical disunity in our relationships in the church results of course in a, in, 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 in a, uh, a loss of the love and peace of God uh, being actively present in our, in our midst and again, 
What we've seen over and over again is that Paul is an apostle of the resurrected Christ. When Paul commands us to do these things, it's not optional. If you're rejecting Paul's commands, you're rejecting Christ. You're rejecting God. God is saying to you, agree with one another, live in peace with one another, encourage one another, mend those relationships, humble yourself, rejoice. It's not me, it's not even Paul, it's ultimately Christ. And then the sixth commandment comes, so just after that, he says, this is also again in the imperative mood, it's a command, greet one another with a holy kiss. And that one sounds a bit weird to us. Okay, greet one another with a holy kiss. What's going on here? Uh, well, uh, in the ancient world, uh, and, and some of the sort of uh, Mediterranean countries still to this day, people do greet one another with, with a kiss. Um, Normally on the side, you've seen maybe those mafia movies where they, uh, <laughs> they kiss on each cheek. And um, I, for one, am quite grateful that we don't do that anymore. Uh, because when I was growing up, when I'd ever go and meet some family member, that we used to do that kiss. But then you walk in and I'm like, which side is she going to go? <laughs> I can't tell. I was so stressed every time we have family functions because I'm like, I just don't know. Is there a law? Is it the left side? And then you both go the one way, then you try and go the other <laughs> So, um, So what's going on here? I mean, it seems God, it's clearly commanded. In fact, Paul repeats this command many times. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So why are we sinning? Don't we obey this command? Why are we not doing this? Um, well, it, it sort of faded out of, out of use in the church because of as you can imagine, the abuse. And there was a pastor who tried to, you know, he was studying the Bible. This is, this is in the last 50 years somewhere. He's studying the Bible and he was persuaded, no, we need to reintroduce this. You know, we need to be faithful to God's word. And so he started to reintroduce it. And then after a while, someone said to him, have you noticed that you greet the young ladies a lot more than you greet other people? Okay. And he wasn't being... Um, vile. It was just something that ended up happening. Uh, and so that's why it stopped, because it started to be abused in the church. But notice what it says there, a holy kiss. Okay? So it's, it's, it's uh, nothing sexual or erotic. It's supposed to be a kiss of, of love and affection. So why do we not practice it anymore? Uh, so just a quick principle on Bible interpretation. You might find there's certain things in the Bible we don't practice. Why don't we do it? Well, we say that there are principles that the Bible teaches and then there are practices that the Bible teaches. The principles are timeless. So why don't we do head covering here uh, for ladies, First Corinthians. We say uh, that's a practice at that time and that culture. The principle of wives submitting to husbands is timeless. That does not change from culture to culture. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian in North America, in Scandinavia, in Africa, in South America. That principle is timeless across every generation, across every culture. But what it looks like in each culture is going to vary. Okay? So it is with this. The practice of a holy kiss, that's the, the physical practice. What is the principle behind it? It is a warm and loving and considerate greeting. That is timeless. If you're a Christian, wherever you are on the planet, when you see another brother or sister, you should greet that person with a warm and loving and thoughtful and considerate greeting. Some cultures will still do a kiss. Some will do a, a handshake. Uh, some, what, what do Eskimos do? They rub their noses, I think, together. Uh, um, I... I so when I was growing up, the churches I grew up in, it was always just a handshake. And, that's, and there's nothing, some people have mocked that, but the Bible does send it, say extend the right hand of fellowship. So there's something to that. And that's a, as long as it's, you, it's still thoughtful and loving, uh, you're not one of those, what's the alpha male. Like. <laughs> and it's eye contact and it's like, whoa, okay. So, uh, that's not loving and kind and... Um, 
but uh, what I love though is, is, is how, how things are, unfortunately with COVID it's gone a bit backwards, but um, just uh, hugs. Uh, so that's been a shift for me over the years and it's wonderful. It's just, it, it, it's a sense of, of, of camaraderie and, and more concern and I love it, okay, so that we, we get to hug one another now. Uh, to sh it's, it's, it's symbolic of our love and care for one another. So what is going to help us keep unity? What's going to help us fight division is if we actually care about people. When you see them on the Lord's Day, when you see them in your growth group, when you see them on the street, to sincerely find out how they're doing, to greet them. Okay? To gr it's so good to... Remember, this is a somebody that Jesus Christ died for. They are the most precious... Uh, people on the planet, they are the jewels, the scripture says. So when you meet a fellow Christian, it is glorious. Okay? Uh, this is someone that Jesus died for, to greet them, to find out how are you doing. Okay? And so that principle abides. Okay? Uh, seek to, if your heart is not in the right place before you come to church, ask the Lord to help you. Um, to, to, to soften your heart. And it's also moving out of ourselves, isn't it? And that's what, what we're called to do, to, to move out of ourselves to care for the other, to find out how the other one is doing. Okay? And so greeting is tremendously important in Scripture. That's why Paul repeats it over and over again. Um, verse 13, he says, all the saints greet you. Okay, so just quick application there. Again, uh, Paul is, is with another church when he writes this letter to the Corinthians and he sends greetings from the saints there. Okay? So again, Paul hasn't tried to bring division. He hasn't been bad-mouthing the church, the Corinthian church, to this other church. No, they, they send greetings as well. They send their affection and love as well. It's one of the, I, I love when if I'm invited to preach elsewhere or I'm down in Potch or wherever it is, that I can bring greetings from heritage. And I know that's so hard. I think the principle here is fraternal relationships with other churches, other faithful churches. We're, we're not a cult. I'm always scared of that, you know, we're an independent Baptist church. We're an independent church. We're just off on our own somewhere. No, we should be in relationships with brothers, other churches, brothers and sisters in other churches. It's healthy. It's, it protects us from becoming a cult. Okay. And then we come to verse 14 in closing. Uh, what many commentators say is the greatest of all the, the benedictions, the greatest of all the blessings. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now I hope you notice why they say that. It's because it's Trinitarian. Do you see that? That we have the Lord Jesus Christ mentioned, we have God mentioned, who is God the Father, and we have the Holy Spirit. We have three, all three members of the Trinity mentioned in this one verse. And so just again, Christians are often weak on the doctrine of the Trinity. That's why Jehovah's Witnesses can schmorkle their brains a bit uh, when, they, when they come with their, their strange ideas. But here it is, the doctrine of the Trinity. You just need to remember three truths that the Bible clearly teaches. There is one God. How many gods are there? There is only one. Okay? We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, Lord your God is one. There's only one God who exists. This is the second statement. Who exists as three persons. Now we are on holy ground when we talk about the Trinity. Language begins to fail us. We use the word person. We're not trying to say three human beings. We... we, we we don't know how else to try and put it, but there are three persons, three personalities, not three forces, okay? These are persons. That's the second statement. One God who exists as three persons, and each person, third statement, is fully God. Each person is fully God. There is not degrees of Godness. Okay, so that's what the Bible teaches. And if you, if you want to know the proof text and all the verses, you can speak to someone, you can Google it. Um, it's what the Bible clearly teaches. 
Now, there are several lists where we have all three members of the Trinity. And most of them start with the Father first, then the Son and the Spirit. But we also have the Spirit first. And here we have the Son first. And notice what he says here. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's now bringing us the doctrine of the Trinity who are in perfect unity. And this is really uh, what the church should be striving for. The doctrine of the Trinity is sort of an, an analogy of the unity that we want. The Trinity are at perfect peace with one another. And that's what we should be striving for. And so he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as the theologian of grace, he begins with grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a helpful helpful sort of statement. Uh, Wrath or judgment is getting what we deserve. If you're not a Christian, maybe that sounds disturbing to you. Say, what do you mean? Wrath is what I deserve. Judgment is what I deserve. But it is true. Uh, Every one of us deserve hell. Every one of us deserve the wrath of God because we have broken his commands. We are covenant breakers. We live in rebellion against him. And God deserves to send us to his prison. We have sinned against a holy and infinite God. And we deserve wrath. That's what we deserve. Uh, That's why I've always appreciated, and I've shared it before, what one pastor says when people ask him how he's doing. He says, better than I deserve. Okay, better than I deserve. Whatever you're going through, even if it's unjust and unfair, it is still better than what you deserve. We all deserve hell. So we're all doing better than we deserve right now. And if you're not a Christian, there is hope. You have a window open to receive, to repent and believe. So wrath is getting what we do deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. See that? If I deserve uh, punishment and I don't get punishment, that's mercy. So sometimes I do that with my children. They deserve discipline. They deserve punishment. And every now and then I'll say I'm not going to so that they would understand mercy. So mercy is not getting what I do deserve. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. So not only does God not, if you're in Christ, not only does God just, you know what some people say, they say it's fire insurance. That's what being a Christian means. You don't go to hell. It's a terrible statement. I don't It just reduces Christianity as a get-out-of-hell card. But yes, that's mercy. We don't get that. But Christianity is so much more. It is grace. Scripture even talks about grace upon grace. It is getting what we don't deserve. It is being given eternal life. It's been adopted into the family of God. Receiving all the blessings and privileges of a son of God. The grace of the Lord Jesus. How does that come to us? It comes to us through Jesus Christ. Through his death, burial, resurrection. Through his perfect life that is credited to the account of his children. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the love of God. So many people, even Christians, we battle with this concept. We tend to think of God as, we we think of Old Testament stories and, and, and people often say these things, don't they? They think, you know, Jesus is loving, but God seems very angry. Uh, and they think of stories where God destroyed people and destroyed nations and all. And they think it's hard to reconcile that God the Father is love. But you're reading the Bible wrong then if you're not getting that. Because the scriptures are clear. And those stories of judgment, you need to understand they're interspersed by centuries of God pleading with his people, sending them prophets that they killed over and over and over again. If you read, you know, quickly, you'll get the idea God is just angry every day and destroying people every day. That's not the case. He is long-suffering. It is centuries of pleading and crying out, repent, repent. I'm going to give you a little hiding now so that you'll come right. But mankind continues to rebel against God. God is love. The scripture is clear on that. 
God so loved the world that he gave what was most precious to him, his own son, the very image of himself, he gave. Romans 5, 6, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you need to fill your mind with truth again. God is love. Again, there's this idea, you know, God is angry, but Jesus appeases him like Jesus sort of, no, no, don't destroy them. And the Father's like, I really want to destroy them. And Jesus, no, don't destroy them. No, that's rubbish, okay? The Trinity work together. The Trinity love the elect with an unfathomable love. The Father initiated this plan to redeem a people for himself. You and I are loved perfectly in Christ, beyond our comprehension. And then lastly, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It can, in the Greek it can mean two things, and I think both of them are, are it's intentionally ambiguous so that we get both of them. It can mean that in Christ, because Christ has given the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and we are united to one another by that one Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. All baptized into one Spirit and all made to drink of the one Spirit. We are united by the Holy Spirit. We are joined to one another. That's why we are called the body of Christ. That will, that's why we have unity. Imagine if, if our unity was dependent on we all like the same music. Okay. We wouldn't have unity. Okay. Or we all dress the same. We wouldn't have unity. Or we all like the same sports or the same foods or uh, whatever it is. But our unity is based on the fact that we have the same spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We belong to God. We are His children. We have a new nature. Or it can mean it is the Holy Spirit who creates fellowship amongst God's people. And of course both are true. It is the Holy Spirit who, who, who works to create fellowship between us. Of course, if we're quenching the Holy Spirit, if we're resisting, if we're uh, allowing sin, unrepentant sin, which causes division, then that breaks that fellowship. But here he's praying a blessing over God's people. This closing blessing that Paul gives the Corinthians, and I will say it at the end, is what you and I need more than anything else. What you need more than anything else is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What you need more than anything else is the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I really want to emphasize that. Maybe you don't realize it. Maybe you think what I need most is a good meal just now. Um, if we had, we have welcome packs there. They're really nice uh, for visitors. Um, we, you, you get a mug with Heritage Baptist Church. So when you go to the cupboard... And you see that mug and you think, I haven't been to church. <laughs> you feel bad when you come to church. <laughs> but if I said to you, every one of those welcome packs will have a billion rand. This is infinitely more valuable than that. Whatever you think you need the most, this is what you and I need the most. You need the grace of Jesus Christ. You need the love of the Father. You need the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? If we could put that in a little bag there and offer it to every one of you. It's nothing in comparison to this. This is the blessing that you need and that is available. The grace of Jesus Christ. The love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Receive it. Claim it. Lord, I want that. I humble myself. Forgive me for my sin. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for, for giving me the Holy Spirit. The guarantee that, uh, Paul uses this language, the down payment, that you will get eternal life. You will get all the blessings of God's people. It's what you and I need the most. And it's, it's given to us. Amen. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we thank you so much for this, this epistle that we've had the privilege of studying together. I thank you for, for what a privilege it is that, I, that I, I've been able to study it and how you've ministered to me. I ask, Holy Spirit, that uh, there will be much fruit, that you would work in a wonderful way, strengthening your people, giving your people discernment, helping all of us as we face trials and sufferings to endure to the end, and even in the midst of sufferings to know joy. Thank you for this incredible blessing that is ours. Uh, Father, may we really appropriate it for our lives. May we know it experientially. And I pray this for everyone here and those watching. Um, for those who have not yet experienced, who have not yet received this blessing, Lord, may today be the day that they, they humble themselves, they bend their knees, and they receive this benediction. And we ask these things in your precious name. Amen.